Some five years of painstaking work by Ngā Taonga film conservators have revealed previously obscured details in Meritometer's 1983 documentary, Patu. The film dealt with a Springbok rugby team tour and the deep rifts it caused between activists, the police, rugby fans, politicians, even within families. Now new technology and fastidious attention to detail over thousands of hours have made the digital preservation and enhancement of the film possible, but the goal was never to make it look perfect. Ngā Tonga is about to show excerpts from the enhanced patu as part of an exhibition called Tuhai Protest. We have before and after shots of the restored film on our webpage. Uh, do take a look if you can. You might even be able to see yourself in the crowds for the first time. I visited two of the key team members who worked on restoring the documentary, senior preservation archivists Richard Faulkner and Gareth Evans. Gareth has an early memory of seeing a poster for patu. Yeah, well, I saw it on the wall, and it's a very iconic picture. It's of the protest, and... I mean, it's intriguing. It, it drew my attention straight away. Um, and it it wasn't really a film growing up that was being talked about, so it, it had a little bit of mystery about it. And especially coming to the archive and learning a lot more of the history of it, I have a weird personal history with that film. And, I mean, it's only got weirder as I've actually worked on it. It fits really well with the archive as well. Uh, you know, like it's a really iconic picture, not just for New Zealand, but also for the archive. So learning that we could work on it, it was on many levels, really exciting, really interesting. And do you have a connection? What are your memories of it? I was two years old when when the tour happened, um, so I don't remember that specifically, but also notably I don't remember my family ever talking about it. So, And I still don't really know, Yeah, I guess my family is reasonably conservative, but my grandfather was a huge rugby fan, and he never talked about it. Yeah, I think it's kind of notable by its absence in my memory in a way, and it was absolutely not taught. Yeah, but I remember growing up and hearing sort of mentions of the Red Squad and things as I got older and sort of with fearful overtones and growing up and sort of learning more about that, but always kind of shrouded in mystery. So eventually being able to see the film and learn about it and also, yeah, as Gareth mentioned, it's really intimate and founding sort of connection to Natalonga Sound and Vision uh, as an organisation and, and the way that it's been organised and founded has been hugely interesting and really satisfying. So when you had your first look <laughs> at the film with your eye, knowing what would be involved, what, what were your impressions of it? How has it aged? Well, it's even more complicated than that because I did one of the original telecine transfers. So I, I, the first impression I had of it was as a very scared technician working <laughs> on this film and then later on revisiting it at the archive with more experience and going, look, this is what I, I can fix now with the tools we have and, and the experience I've gained. So it was a different it was a different point of view, but there was a little bit of fear there because it was an incredibly, take away the social aspects of it, just on a technical level, an incredibly difficult film. As Richard knows, because he did a lot of the work on the Comform, just piecing the film together from a technical standpoint required a lot of trial and error, experience and research just to get all that kind of thing right. So that's what I mean by it's quite a complicated personal relationship with it because it's grown over time. You know, you go through these phases as of like, I can't wait to work on it. Oh, my God, I'm working on it. You know? <laughs> yes, we're doing really good work and just those different different phases. So it's a complicated question to answer. I mean, from your um, perspective then, Richard, what were the biggest challenges for you? How did you even approach it? You know, what was step one? Right, so um, step one in terms of scanning it was um, we took a print, a finished print 
you know, a release version of the film. And we scanned that in the most neutral way we possibly could to get an overall picture. We were fortunate enough to have an entire version of that film as it was released without any missing frames or anything. So we were able to scan that as a reference copy to say this is what it looks like now as a released version of the film was then. But, of course, then there's aspects like um, the film can deteriorate over time, which we know, fortunately, it didn't have vinegar syndrome, which is when the acetate base of the film starts to deteriorate. But there was a little bit of colour fade as an issue over time. You're Just able... like photographs. Exactly. Really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're able to test that with a tensitometer to a certain extent, but there's always going to be some level of deterioration of the image over time. But we still had some kind of reference as to at least the length of the film, how long each shot should be. And then from there, we would scan the most original generation of the film we could get, which we were able to... We had in our collection the AB Master Negative, which is the camera original footage as it was shot with the cameras at the time and assembled by Annie Collins, the editor, with Metatometer, the director. So, yeah, what we'd probably call now crowdsourcing is the way that the footage was obtained for Patu. So, obviously, being a hugely significant event uh, in New Zealand's history, and that was people were aware of that at the time, all sorts of filmmakers were recording it for their own personal interests and for projects that maybe they were interested in pursuing. And then, over the course of the events of the film being made, people gravitated around the idea that Medita was making this film. We're sitting in your office here and it's all very dark and, and moody because colour is kind of one of the things that you focus on. From the colour point of view, what were the biggest challenges for you? It's an easy answer but a hard one to explain. It's staying true to the intent of the original, which is almost impossible to answer. So if you don't have a goalpost, you don't really know what you're aiming for. But it's it's understanding the film and the technical limits they were working with. So... I could colour it like absolutely anything. I could make it look like a modern film shot on an iPhone yesterday, but that's not the intent of the film. So the challenge is reining in my own instincts of pushing it too far um, and just being true to the film, not removing those fingerprints of the filmmaker. You know, like, um, I suppose we would remove the actual fingerprints from the film, but we want to be able to see the signs, those paintbrush strokes that they've got there. So if there's things like a camera a ge- a here in the gate and the camera that was shot, on the actual day, oh, I would I leave that those in now. There. That's right. Yeah. Just see it, kind of moving slightly, yeah. like a little worm in the corner of the screen. And yeah. of course, like modern post-production facilities, that's the first thing you remove because modern audiences aren't used to it. But you can actually tell which camera is which by the here and the gate. You know that that person was there that day, and then another day they were over here doing another shot. So there's those little things that and tell. They never up. cleaned their gate. <laughs> Well, I mean, they were shooting under pretty stressful situations. It's, I'm not talking bad about the camera people at all, but it's those that larger story that something like Patu tells, that if you stripped it away, you're losing a lot of the context and a lot of that, that larger story about Patu. But, I mean, looking at the, the, the stills of what's been achieved, though, I mean, there was a degree of muddiness. You know, it was like having a bad varnish over an old master, and you take that varnish off, even, yeah. and it's remarkable. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the we have a different approach because we're trying to 
we're trying to do the best for the film possible. Whereas before, like when I was telecine operator at a different organization, it was we were getting the film through to a high standard, but once it was finished, it was finished. We've revisited a lot of shots in Paru for this one. I think Richard's explained that there was whole sequences that when we screened it for the whanau and, and the filmmakers, they, they mentioned it wasn't quite up to snuff. So we've gone back, rescanned it, recolored it just to just to keep the film to the standard that the archive works to, which is quite a different, more personal standard than the technical standard that you'd have outside the archive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you mentioned, you know, staying true to the, um, to the intent and it doesn't look like it was filmed, you know, on a, on a high def in Peter Jackson's <laughs> studio or anything like that, Richard, but the, the detail now that you can see, and you've been looking at this, what, frame by frame, haven't you? Yeah. Which, um, sort of heightens that relationship with the film and all of its subjects and the filmmakers to even another level. Yeah, because something fascinating that I found with the film is that I watched it frame by frame several times before I even watched it with any sound at all. So completely with this quite unusual context where I would find myself looking at people and I'd just look at these freeze-framed faces of people and they might look sad or angry and I'd find myself... Judging them, I would I would be like, oh, I bet you they're pro tour, you know, and forming these little judgments in my head, and then suddenly I'd throw on the sound and bring it into the context that the film intends, and I would find that it would be flipped on its head, and it's been really interesting the way that it's forced me to uh, sit back from. It's sort of taught me a little bit about judgment because I've, I found myself forming these judgments based on still images of people and. Uh, everything I was just bringing to the image that I was seeing and then then actually seeing it in context uh, completely flipped that on its head many times. A lighter story you just told me, but I do love it. It's about the underpants. Oh, I guess that was Gareth. Yeah, Gareth, That's Sorry. right. Um, there's a moment just towards the end of the film when the cops are chasing the protesters and the, the protesters are about to turn, spoiler alert. Um, one of the cops is running along and there's a, a split down the back of his trousers and you can actually see his white underwear and it's something that you wouldn't notice unless you'd seen that shot you know a lot which we had and um, when I noticed it it just gave me it lifted my spirits because we'd been working on the project for months and months years and years and it was like this great little moment of seeing something someone else hasn't hadn't seen it's such a personal touch on one of those one of those police police people everyone's going to be looking for that now yeah <laughs> if I could add another little anecdote that um, Gareth spotted um, through the process of this project was that one moment in the film pretty clearly identifies undercover police and that's a big element of um, the Patu story is um, undercover cops and how they infiltrated these protest networks and uh, to try and subdue them and at one point they get outed by the protesters and you can see them, those police with the cameras pointing at them and reflecting on the fact that they've been identified and they're kind of actually being People are being kind of aggressive and confrontational to them. And with the new scan, you can actually see that one of them looks like they might be crying, which is kind of interesting and quite moving and sort of brings a different element to, you know, there's so many there's so many layers to this film. It's so profound on so many levels that, you know, it's not just making accusations at people. It's, you know, a camera can uncover aspects to, to conflict that, you can't eloquently describe in an interview on radio. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's amazing what the camera can reveal when you can reveal what the camera's captured. 
Yeah, and those different expressions you were saying also, even of the police officers on, on the front line and how much you could tell from their expressions now that we can see them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's a particularly moving part because he's trying to move towards another cop and the other cop's not having a bar of it and he has to stand there by himself with, you know... And he's quite young. So, it, it, yeah, there's, and even just the faces on the protesters when they realise how much gumption it's going to take to get through this and, and the resolve on their faces and being able to see it now, there's just as many moments for the protesters as there are for the police. And even the people just standing by and watching, their faces reveal a lot as well, which you can see now, which is which is part of the whole process. Yeah, there'll be a whole lot of people trying to find themselves. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they'll be able to, whereas before they were yeah. kind of remote. I mean, there were some other moments that you were sharing with me before, two moments of confrontation, which must have been very hard for the two of you who wouldn't really remember the, the time of the protest. You know, it was a different nation and it divided us in a, in a way I was there, you know, I was in a way that we thought we'd never recover from. So, I mean, what have, what have you learned about that time through this process of working all these years on this film? Like I said before, it's quite a mixed and complicated relationship. I see, I'm shocked, especially at the beginning when I talked about one of the one of the members of public going up to the protesters and he was incredibly racist, but he was doing it in a really blokey Kiwi accent, which I just, and you wouldn't get away with that now, put it that way. It was too provocative what he was saying. Um, but also it's that that sadness that we've lost the protest movement almost. You know, these people were, were marching down the streets for something that they cared about. And Growing up, I have hardly ever seen that again. And I mean, the climate change protests would be the nearest we've had probably in recent years, would you say? Yes, and the war, uh, the US war in uh, the Middle East. There was a couple of protests around Wellington for that. But it, the, these are on a whole different level. These are like old ladies standing next to Aborigine um, tribal members, next to patched up gang members, all walking for the same cause in New Zealand. And we just don't see that anymore. So it's very complicated. You get the shock value of, oh my God, this happened in New Zealand, and then also, why isn't it still happening for causes that are just as just that are still around now? Broadening it out again. How long has this project taken? <laughs> I'm going, I was going to ask five, hours, but I, you probably don't know. Years. I'd say five years. Yeah, I think about five years, yeah. Would that make it one of the most extensive projects for Ngātonga Sound Division? Potentially, the, the Saving Frames project was really extensive, but um, that was dealing with multiple titles. So what brought us to this project, to this generation of the project, was um, Hippie Meter's uh, film, Medita, How Mum Decolonised the Screen, which was about his mother, Medita Meter, who was the filmmaker behind Pate. And um, he wanted to use footage from his mother's films for that documentary. Uh, so we scanned Patu the first time around for that, um, but it's a real story of how technology is changing incredibly quickly because at that time we scanned it at um, 2.6K, which at that time we thought was well adequate and for many purposes would be for scanning 60mm film. But subsequently we realised that at the level that we wanted to take this project, we actually wanted to go higher than that. So at that point, scanned the entire film again. Which was completely worthwhile because we did get that extra detail and it gives more information to some of the software that we're doing post-production things with. And the other bonus of it is that it, it let us refine our process as well and think if we were going to do it all again, what would we change? And especially for me, that 
gave me an opportunity to refine the actual process of scanning the film methodically for each of those different film materials that came from the various filmmakers and cameras. Do do you have to think about how many times you scan a film? Is is damage inevitably done every time you scan it? Hopefully not, but absolutely we have to pay the utmost attention to that. So every time, yeah, you try and take that film out of the can an absolute minimum of times, and you don't do so unless you're absolutely sure you know exactly what you're doing on the machine. But, yeah, that's absolutely front of mind. With that said, uh, the equipment that we're scanning on should be, if we're using it correctly, very unlikely to cause damage to the film. The modern scanning machines are based on capstan rollers and don't actually have the sprockets which drive through the perfs, which traditional film equipment used to have. So, of course, the problem used to be if it went off the rollers due to shrinkage or problems, then you'd suddenly have sprockets driving through the image. Um, That problem's kind of been solved with modern scanners, which is very relieving. (laughs) Gareth, when you've spent so much time with a film like this, again, for you, frame by frame, detail by detail, colour by colour, mm-hmm. is it hard to let it go? Mm, yes and no. Like the, I'm called a colourist, but also the main part of the job is finishing the film. Um, that's just as relevant to modern films as it is to something like Paru. Like you really are here to finish the film. Yeah, how would I put it? Finishing sounds odd in an archival sense because you, you're only really, you're a custodian for the item. You're not really finishing it. But I'm always thinking about how can I finish this film? How can I get it to that end goal? Otherwise, I would be grading forever because I'm never happy with my work. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, so you, it was something I was taught very early on is always be finishing, just always be finishing. So if, if, if tomorrow, you know, I got hit by a bus, the film is in a state that it could be proudly shown somewhere in, in the best possible light. So, yeah, you work on it and you work on it and you work on it. At the back of your mind, you're always like, I need to finish it. It's always difficult, though. It's always difficult finishing a film. You always want to revisit things here and there. So is your job now done? I have a tiny bit of paperwork and I need to transfer a file over to our um, tape library so it's fully archived and then that's it. How about you, Richard? Job done? Yep, hopefully there's the paperwork aspect. We now have to describe everything we've done. which <laughs> It's going to take a while, given it's been a few years. It could take as long, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, hopefully the, the technical aspects of actually preparing the film for me should be done. I'm just going to push everything else towards Gareth. And then I guess when you be in the audience, when it's first shown, you know, that big kind of big reveal, do the two of you want to be there to see people's responses to it? I mean, that's, that's the pay, payoff. It's a legacy project, so you've done it and it's archival, but it's also what this is going to mean to people. Look, I, I think I was, or, I was at the screening I wanted to be at, which is when we, we showed it to the Farnow and the filmmakers, and I, got, I was privileged enough to be there and hear some of the things that they had to say. And for me, as far as that's concerned, that was the main screening. I can't wait for the public to see it, but I've seen it so many times now. I can't, just sitting in the room with it again would probably... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love the film, but I also I can't watch it anymore. For my part, I think... Uh, Stockholm syn- syndrome may have set in because I'm I look forward to screenings of it in a strange way. Um, I think it's just such such a strong film in terms of its message, and I find the message its co-papa is so important to me that I look forward to seeing as many people as possible in front of this film. Um, I'd love to see it go around every high school in New Zealand.
I think it would raise a lot of questions. I mean, the fact that we grew up in New Zealand in the 80s and we, I knew nothing about it mm. until the late 90s, I think that that's something that needs to be rectified. Richard Faulkner and Gareth Evans, Senior Preservation Archivists at Ngā Tonga Sound and Vision. Tohe protest opens on Friday the 23rd of July at the National Library of New Zealand in Wellington.